Father, bless us this morning with your word, with your hallelujah. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And you may be seated in his presence. Thank you, worship team. Let's hear it for them. They are putting it together in a difficult time. I want to update you that Paula, uh, we won't be seeing Paula on Sundays for a little while while she undergoes treatment, uh, but she is courageous and faithful and uh, righteous before the Lord, and just keep her in your prayers uh, as we go forward. And, at, and in the meantime, she is still mentoring. I think this worship team would, would nod their heads and say she's still uh, in contact, and she's picking the songs based on what the text is, and she's bringing those talents to us. So let's keep holding her up. And uh, I'm so grateful, Paula, for you. I know you're watching at home, so you're the best. We love you. Uh, as a matter of fact, let's just pray for Paula right now. Father, we lift up Paula Huggins, our worship leader, to you for so many years. And we want to say that... Uh, we know you love her even more than we do, and that's saying a lot, Lord. So now give her everything she needs, every spiritual blessing under heaven as she uh, makes this journey and wages this battle with illness. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, church, um, this is probably the best. You know, I, I, outdoor Sundays in August always scare me, right, because the humidity can be incredible. But today, let's hear it for the Lord glorifying himself. Around us, it's a beautiful day here inside the pavilion. Church, there are two words that communicate clearly in English wherever you go in the world. And I have personal experience with this, Alan. I know you'll back me up. Two words that communicate clearly whatever country you're in, whatever language you're dealing with and going cross-culture. One is Coca-Cola and the other is Hallelujah. And we're going to drill down this morning into one of them and it's not going to be Coca-Cola. Hallelujah Church is universally recognized around the world, uh, verbally, but perhaps especially, Jasmine, in music. There are so many songs, we sang two of them already, we'll sing a third in a moment, that, that sing of this, this hallelujah, this word, this Hebrew word, hallelujah, com, a compound Hebrew word. And in music, because it's so relatable in music, it's perfect, Bob Boyer, for our summer series, the songs of the summer, isn't it? And Bob Boyer is always the most interested. What songs are going to be this week that we're matching up with? This week, um, I'm going to match this with Leonard Cohen's song from the mid-1980s, 84, I believe it was released, uh, Leonard Cohen's song, Hallelujah. Uh, and it remains one of the most covered songs in modern history. Uh, it's appeared in, so, you may not know it, but you've heard it as a soundtrack, usually at the end of a sad um, TV show or movie. It's been in dozens of movies, TVs, and it, and it gives a variety of vibes uh, in, in, its, uh, in its history. Cohen claims that he wrote over 150 verses, John, to this song. Imagine that. And five, six make it into the song. They actually switch around depending on the artist that's doing it. Uh, you're going to hear, if you listen to Hallelujah, the song, you'll hear different versions with different time signatures. Troy, it was written in 12-8 time. Imagine that. That's kind of cool. Uh, but you'll hear different time signatures. You'll hear different lyrics from different performers. I actually love the most recent Pentatonix version that was on their Christmas album in 2019. And the reason I love it is because it features a distinct variety of voices on each verse, which I think really lends itself to the song. If you haven't seen their video of Hallelujah, go home and look at it. To me, it's one of the most stunning videos I know. Uh, that's just me, and you might say that was boring, but whatever. I like it because it's a departure from the solo versions. It gives us a communal feel. 
Now, Hallelujah, Troy, is even a lesson in music theory. Uh, because the very first verse that most artists will include is written, it's written in the key of C major, and it goes like this. It's, well, he, he sings it. It says, it goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lifts, a baffled king composing, hallelujah, right? So it gives us, and that's, that's the progression of early rock and roll, of, of gospel music, uh, C, F, G, A minor, and F. Like, off it goes, you know. Troy, you can play that when you get back up here. Jeff Buckley, who did the, the most prominent, most popular version of the song back in the 90s, uh, and his version is quite melancholy. Listen to that, too. Uh, he said something about this word, hallelujah, and hit the song, hallelujah. He said this, hallelujah, the song, can be joyous or bittersweet, joyous or bittersweet, depending on which part you use. And I would say, indeed, and we're going to find that in our psalm today. Hallelujah, therefore, is our title this morning, uh, Psalm 146. You can turn to it on your phones and your Bibles. Turn to it at home. We're going to have uh, the text up here as well. Hallelujah is a compound Hebrew word. It's an imperative that means this, praise the Lord. Somebody say praise the Lord. That's what hallelujah means. I don't know if you knew that. And though we most often think of this word in happy contexts, uh, we're going to see today it has a much wider range for human living and for human experience. And my hope is uh, that you will experience inside all of its heavenly scope because it has this wide range depending on which part you use. Because Psalm 146, church, as you look at it, take a look, Psalm 146 is an hallelujah sandwich. It begins with hallelujah, praise the Lord in verse 1. And if you look down to verse 10, it ends with yet another hallelujah, praise the Lord. It's a hallelujah sandwich. So as I read one, Psalm 146, and invite you can read with me if you like. If you're better to get the words and the meaning by just listening, you can do that. But you, if you're better like me, reading out loud, you can read with me. It'll be up on the screen. It'll be with you at home. But when we read this, you are going to hear the bookends of this psalm, the sandwich, the bread of the psalm, but I want you to let your soul ride the liminal space in between the bread, in between the bookends. Uh, and that's what liminal means. It's just what's going on in between, what's happening. So uh, I want, I, I'm going to have a sit for the reading of God's word to let you meditate on this. I'm going to read it aloud. Feel free to read with me. Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Do not put trust, your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. Now listen, church. Verse 7. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. Somebody say praise the Lord. Somebody say hallelujah. You're just going from English to Hebrew there. 
Now, in verse 1, take a look. When he says, praise the Lord, so far, in this initial sentence, so far, John, it's plural. It is for us to be praising the Lord together as a community. But when you sing in a chorus, Angie, it, it, there's often a time to step out of the choir and to sing a solo. So, you see, he starts with the communal imperative, but then he immediately says, watch this, in the second half of verse 1, praise the Lord, O my soul. The psalmist knows the value of a solo. Solo. He knows how to preach to himself. He knows how to make decisions on the inside. And this is something, like, we sometimes do this unconsciously. You, you, you've heard of people who sleepwalk. Anybody in here know that they sleepwalk and willing to raise their hand? Uh, certainly, you've probably heard people sleep talk. Anybody ever heard that before? Uh, some of you do it. I hadn't really experienced this until our third child grew up around age eight, and, uh, and it was not uncommon to hear him speaking clearly in his sleep. Uh, and with Cole, it would often evolve into sleep laughter. Uh, imagine that. Uh, but I wonder in our conscious mind, I wonder if as we wake up each morning with our first conscious thoughts, if it might mark us more distinctly as God's people, if we learned what the psalmist knew to say to himself, praise the Lord, O my soul. What if we woke up with that on our minds? And I don't know, church, how you shape your devotions. I don't know if you have some simple formula of, of sorry, thank you, please, or ask, seek, and knock. All of that's good. Some of you like to put on a praise album uh, and, and enjoy God as they listen. One way or the other, that doesn't really matter. But what the psalmist encourages us to do is to make sure that we know what it is in our souls to praise God. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. And actually, church, notice this. He insists that he's going to do it. He insists on it. So look at verse 2. I will praise the Lord all my life. I, and we just sang this. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live, no matter what. Janelle, you're the best I know at this. Praise the Lord. Life's hard, and you're praising the Lord. It's more than a mood-of-the-moment response. It's more than a, a sunny summer day. It's more than a great day to be alive here on the harbor kind of feeling. That's all good. Matter of fact, last, last week I was driving to a golf outing uh, in the early morning before um, dawn um, and with three elders, Alan, Judy, and Brennan. Judy, by the way, her golf game is fire, so go play golf with her. But, uh, and, and it was beautiful out, wasn't it, Alan? You were driving from a different spot, but going over the bridge and the sky was bright with various colors. Who wouldn't praise the Lord in that kind of circumstance, right? But the psalmist is saying something bigger. The psalmist is saying something more. He is saying, I am putting in place a strategic commitment, not just with, on a, a beautiful Sunday, not just with crowds around to help me, not just on a Thanksgiving holiday, but through the week, through the ups and downs, through the highlands and the heartaches, which we sang last week, built into his soul, he is saying, I will praise the Lord. And perhaps this morning, we can decide to join him. That would be a good takeaway for all of us. You see, praise the Lord, church, is not just a little trite jingle. It's not an empty-headed repetition. It's not a mantra to work up to some sort of spiritual ecstasy. The praise the Lord that bookends uh, the beginning and end of this psalm that provides the sandwich bread, it sandwiches deep theological content. And, and of, of course, in a sandwich, 
bread matters, right? Bread matters. But if you ask someone eating the sandwich, Alan, what kind of, what kind of sandwich is it? No one's going to say it's a bread sandwich. They're going to tell you what's in it. It's ham, it's cheese, it's egg, it's turkey, it's PB&J, whatever. But that's the kind of sandwich it is. So praise the Lord, the psalmist says. And we praise in part because of what we discover about God's character. This character of the God that we rejoice in. The psalmist has several reasons for us to take home this morning about this sandwich. And they revolve around who he is in between the hallelujahs. Somebody say hallelujah. First of all, this, where, where the psalmist wants to take us is that he, we praise him because he is the Lord of the disillusioned. The disillusioned. See how he goes on in verse 3. Do not put your trust in princes. And I doubt that he's just thinking of royalty. He means the powerful. <clears throat> he means the prominent. He means the power brokers and the persuasive and the politicians and the pundits. Those kinds of princes, whoever they are for you, whoever they are in your life, don't put your trust in them, he says. And whether these words are spoken by the psalmist out of his own bitter experience or he's warning you about these kinds of things, putting your trust there because he wants you to, you to avoid that bitter experience, doesn't really matter. These are the words of someone who has witnessed trust being put in princes and the powerful and seen the disillusionment that comes as a result. Someone, this is someone who knows the disappointment that princes of any stripe will bring to you and to me. So we need this warning, church, because the backing and support and alignment of princes in our lives, it can seem, it can seem so much more substantial to us than our relationship with God, so much more practical sometimes than our relationship with God. This is how it can seem. But you don't have to live, have lived for long, right, Yvonne, to, to have seen Trust that's put in princes evaporate, disappear. We see it constantly as we start up new ministries and we wait for resources that are promised by government and politicians and funders and economists and financiers, and it just trickles and never comes. And you wonder, that's where we can't, we can't put our trust there because they overborrow, they overreach. And, and our disappointment that comes when our own heroes have feet of clay in the end of things that are really important. So verse 3, do not put your trust in princes or in human beings who cannot save. Because church power brokers have a sell-by date. That's when they return to the ground. Verse 4, take a look. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. This is echoes of Genesis 3 where God says to Adam, dust you are and to dust you shall return. We've all heard that. And the psalmist is saying, don't rely on people of dust. Don't rely on the dusty. The psalmist reminds us that we all are mortal creatures who return to the ground, even the princes in our life. I, mean, I remember back in the, right at the turn of the century, uh, it was in my adult, you know, middle of my adulthood, where we, we had so much optimism and, and, and put our hope on a better tomorrow. But in the 22 years that have passed since that turn of the century, disillusionment and cynicism have really, that's really what marks and dominates the trail of our lives since then. We see it every year. It seems to get heavier. And, and we are, it reminds us that we are all mortal creatures when I, we put our trust in earthly things. And then the psalmist observes the pall that death casts over all ambitions. He says this, on that very day, their plans come to nothing. 
So church, no matter how, how long the obituary, no, no matter how well attended the funeral, no matter how large the estate, the paths of glory uh, that our earth presents lead only to the grave. And the psalmist is reminding us of this. And this is why the psalmist's advice here has lasted for thousands of years and is still valuable advice for us this morning. Because he goes on to say there's only one person worthy of unconditional trust, and it's not a mortal human. There's only one person in the world you can depend on. Look at verse 5. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. The Lord who will remain faithful forever. Listen, and we'll see this plainly in a moment, I guarantee it. But if the weak of the earth, if, if, if the weak of the earth are seeking a champion, someone to protect them in their vulnerability, someone to deliver them from their fears, then the psalmist is saying, forget the generals, forget the politicians, forget the economists. Don't put your trust in princes. Put your trust in the Lord. Praise the Lord. And he mentions Jacob. Remember, who remembers Jacob in the scripture, right? We, we all have some sense of him from way back in the book of Genesis. You remember Jacob. He's the one who plays hardball with his brother Esau to get his birthright before he would hand over the appropriate stew. This is the one who, who, <clears throat> who calmed his father to get his blessing and his inheritance. Well, this twisted character of Jacob, God reaches out to this, to this twisted character and and, and the psalmist is reminding, it, he, reminding us he reaches out to you and me as well because we all bring a twisted character into the equation. It's you and me that he is making and remaking. It's you and me that he is directing and redeeming. It's you and me who he is blessing and our descendants. Jacob is now the name for a nation, God's people. And to have this God, his God, be your help, my help, that is a real blessing. The psalmist is telling us to have him, that God, as our richest hope is our richest blessing because his powers never evaporate, never go away. Look at the reminder of this in verse 6 and verse 10. Verse 6, he's the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. And then verse 10, the Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Church, this is the promise. There is never a day, Grace City, when his plans Come to nothing. Princes will disappoint sooner or later. So praise the Lord. He is the Lord of the disillusioned. But then secondly here, the psalmist wants to tell us he is the Lord of the disregarded. Somebody say disregarded. It's a word we don't use much, but keep it in mind. The psalmist may be praising solo in verse 2, but he's not an individualist who's locked into his own concerns. He looks around at a complex world with an infinite variety of people having an infinite variety of needs. And he's not blind, just like you're not, to the many evidences of evil in the world. It's just that what he's going to do here, what he does here, is he puts alongside the evidence of evil, he puts this Lord alongside it all. The maker, the savior, the redeemer. Watch this. Here in the middle of the Alleluia sandwich... The psalmist describes uh, an inventory, if you will, of the disadvantaged and the disregarded. From those in bondage to those broken by injustice, to, from the refugee to the single parent family, it's all here. Look down at verses 7 to 9. Verse 7, he speaks of the oppressed, the hungry, the prisoners. Verse 8, the blind and the bowed down. Verse 9, the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow. And alongside the victims of life's injustice, alongside the marginalized, 
He always puts the Lord. So watch this, verses 7 to 9, take a look. So this Lord upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. This Lord sets the prisoners free. This Lord gives sight to the blind. This Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. This Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. Grace City, he's saying this Lord is faithful forever, remains faithful forever in his ability, capacity, and willingness to do something on behalf of the disregarded. Now, I know what you're thinking, and the psalmist is not unaware of this either. Of course the psalmist knew in his day, just like we know today, of the beggar who was unfed. He knew of the prisoner who was not freed. But he remains committed to the Lord who can put an end and will put these things right. As one writer put it, you may have to experience patience, but you don't have to slip into despair if you believe the world is in the hands of such a God. I love that. The psalmist is not a sentimentalist about the world here. He faces it with all of its harsh realities, but insists that the ultimate truths will be these things put into their rightful place. And he will insist on it as he lives his life. Praise the Lord in the midst of all this. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. I will insist on that. Will we insist on it too? Will we as a church, Grace City, here in Baltimore, uh, and, and with our partners in Managua and around the Mid-Atlantic, will we insist on striving to put things right the way the Lord promises? That's, that's the hallelujah. That's the hallelujah sandwich. That's why we say over and over, even in the midst of difficulty, hallelujah. So why do we tell ourselves to praise the Lord in, in, in the face of such harsh realities? Here it is. So that we might be a cohort of grown-up believers. Point to yourself and say, I want to be a grown-up believer. That's a personal thing. But what if we become a cohort of grown-up believers who know what it is and what it looks like to live in the Alleluia sandwich? To live in the midst of the praise the Lord declaration. To live in the midst of that despite all that life can bring us. Those who recognize God's creation design and God's ultimate restoration. Who recognize that's taking place. In the midst of disillusion and disregard, we are ever striving agents for human thriving. Let me say it again. In the midst of disillusionment, in the midst of disregard, we are to be ever striving agents. Human agents, human agents for human thriving. You're even pictured, you and I are pictured here in verse 8, the last part of verse 8. The Lord loves the righteous. The righteous are those who will join him in the hallelujah. The righteous are those who will say yes to the Lord. I will praise your name all of my life. He loves those. Whatever our social standing, that's not what matters. What matters is will we live in the sandwich? And then he describes our counterparts, the opposite. In verse 9, he frustrates the ways of the wicked, those who want nothing to do with human thriving, those who would push it away on behalf of themselves. Whatever their base of power, it doesn't matter to the Lord because his is greater. So Grace City, here it is. Hundreds of years after the psalmist wrote this, hundreds of years after Psalm 146, a carpenter's son from the city of Nazareth is handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He's about 30 years old. And he reads words from it that echo the spirit of the psalm. And here's what he reads, and it's from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, 18 and 19. You'll see it on your screen. He reads this. 
The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, and Jesus, Jesus said to them, Today, somebody say today, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, Mary Lou, today, Grace City, today the Lord has stepped into our world. Not a safe middle-class world, but one full of traumas and hurts and illness. The hurts of the disregarded. Not a world seen through rose-colored glasses, but one full of realities experienced by the disillusioned. Our day, today, the inclusiveness. Just think of Sunday around the world right now. Can you just imagine? Just let yourself go from the pavilion around Baltimore, churches meeting, around the world, churches meeting. The, incl the inclusiveness of this Lord is celebrated all around the world. And do you, do you know where I have found in my travels? Back me up on this, some of you who've traveled to churches in other places, particularly in the developing world. He is celebrated so wholeheartedly in the poorest, disillusioned, disregarded places of the world. The garbage dump of Managua, Alan, remember? The celebration... In the, in the garbage dump, in the shanty towns, in the favelas, in, in the hood, in the alleyways. People by the millions today are celebrating this Lord revealed in Jesus. He is their hope. Why is he their hope? Why? This is why, you know, when I walk weekly several times in the, in the most difficult neighborhoods in Baltimore, there are hundreds of storefront churches. And I, why is that? Why, why are these so many churches in the toughest neighborhoods? Because folks in these realities, from the garbage dump to the hood, and folks in these realities, they get this Jesus. They, they love this Jesus. Why? Because he had all the glory and made himself of no reputation. He gave it up. He surrendered it. He had all the power, and yet he covered himself in shame for you and me, so that we wouldn't have to live in our shame anymore, so that we could shed our shame. Grace City, I can leave, you can leave your shame behind because of this Lord. I can walk out into the world with my head held high because the only person whose opinion to me matters anymore is God the Father. Through Christ, looks at me, honors me, crowns me, gives me glory. It's that personal in our solo walk with God, and it's that Thrive. It's that human thriving in our communal walk with God that he calls us to. So ours is the Lord of the disillusioned. Ours is the Lord of the disregarded. Hallelujah. That's why we celebrate him. That's why. All over the world today. Take yourself there and celebrate. Somebody say hallelujah. Whoever I am, whoever we are, no matter how low my starting point, this Lord includes me in. Amen? As the worship team comes up, uh, we look back at the psalm, and we see that he ends where he begins. Praise the Lord in verse 10. We've reached the other side of the sandwich. It's the other piece of bread on the other side. And if, and if you will, with this matching hallelujah, notice one final thing with me as, as you look back at verses 7 to 10 again. 
between the last line of verse 7 and the first line of verse 10. Six times, church, six times the Lord's name rings out. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. Six times, as if to dismiss any other name, every other name. No matter how powerfully any name looms in our lives, it's the Lord whose name matters. Not presidents or kings, not Western government, not the GOP, not the Democratic Party. Notice how I covered all those bases. Not the famous athletes, not the famous entertainers, not famous pastors, not Grace City Baltimore, not Facebook or TikTok or Fox or CNN. None of that, no media platform, none of it stands up to the Lord. The call of this psalm that we can decide on strategically this morning to practice in between, this call is praise the Lord. Somebody say praise the Lord. Say it louder. Listen, you know as well as I do that there are so many people, so many institutions, so many candidates, so many CEOs, so many voices clamoring for, for my heart's trust, for my heart's loyalty, for my heart's praise. And the psalmist reminds us, I will praise the Lord all of my life. All of my life. My, here's the takeaway I want. Will we, copy, will we imitate the psalmist this morning? Will we copy him and practice our hallelujah? Whether we feel like it or not is not the issue. Whether life is easy or not is never the issue. It just won't be. And the older you get, the more you'll go, yeah, Bob, you're right there. It's will we decide to praise the Lord in the in-between? We have the bread, and now we have the meat in between. He's the Lord of the disillusioned. He's the Lord of the disregarded. We have, as the songwriter said, Troy, Jaquina, Abby, Nigos, James, Ernesto, all of you, we have 10,000 reasons to praise the Lord, to bless the Lord, interchangeable. So let's stand and practice our hallelujahs as we sing a final song this morning. 10,000 reasons. Let's stand up and sing it. And I want to hear this, I want to hear this congregation sing it. You sing it as if you mean it this morning. Amen.